0: Well I think before yeah. Margaret gets any more nervous i <laughs> will just start. Welcome everybody to the last uh, talk this term. It is my very great pleasure to <laughs> welcome and introduce to you a uh, dear friend and former colleague from Germany, Dr. Margaret Pernau. Uh, Dr. Pernau received a Habilitation or German Professorial Qualification from the University of Bielefeld last year, but unlike wrongly stated in our flyer, She is (coughs) no longer a research (coughs) associate there at the University of Bielefeld but has moved on to Berlin where for the past two years she has worked as a program development officer at the Center for the Modern Orient and has more recently, as of two months I think, uh, joined the Max Planck Institute for Human Development. Which is now heading a, an interesting new research project that investigates the history of emotions from a comparative perspective. Margaret's work as a South Asian and as a comparative historian is truly impressive in both size, scope, and depth. She is the author of two books, um, one the <coughs> that came out of a doctoral dissertation. The Passing of Patrimonialism, Politics, and Political Culture in Hyderabad, 1911-48. And her very recent volume, which is unfortunately in German, will keep on pestering <laughs> until she translates it into English, Bürger with Turbans. <coughs> this is her study on Dili Muslims in the 19th century. Margaret is also the editor of uh, the Dili College, Traditional Elites, the Colonial State, and Education before 1857. <coughs> and she has co-edit an, uh, co-edited a number of volumes, including with Mushirul Hassan, Regionalizing Pan-Islam, Documents on the Khilafat Movement, <coughs> and Steve Andrews, Zaghaullah of Dili, as well as with Intiaz Ahmed and Helmut Heifert, <coughs> Family and Gender. Changing patterns of family and gender values in Europe and India. And she is the co-editor of two forthcoming volumes, one with Yunus Jafri, handwritten Persian <coughs> newspapers in Delhi, 1810 to 1830, and another co-edited book with our speaker of last week with Monica Junica which is also going to be in German, I guess, and it translates into religion and (coughs) boundaries towards a transnational historiography. So there's no time to go into her many papers and essays, but let me just say that the latter co-edited volume with Monica represents an ongoing concern of Margaret's with the possibilities and the limits of a transnational and comparative historiography. As she herself puts it in her latest books, which you may want to pass around, she is testing the possibilities <coughs> of proceeding from an entangled history to an entangled historiography. So Margaret will talk to us today about the language of global history, Ashraf, middle classes, and burgher examples from Dili in the 19th century, so please join me in welcoming her to Chicago in what we hope will be only the first in a series of future visits.
1: Thank you very much for this truly laknavi introduction. I'm always, as a Delhi I'm always envious at the way that, that these Lachnavis can can really present uh, people and facts in a very flattering way. We never succeed to do that. Uh, so I'm, I'm duly nervous, as you might have realized, and um, I'm not quite sure what will be the outcome of this talk. So if I'm talking too long and you're getting bored and you have the, the impression that I'm getting lost in my sentences and uh, don't know how to finish them any longer, just just give me a yawn or stop me, uh, and we can continue in the, in the discussion. The position from where I'm starting this paper is as a researcher who has been working first in a research department and now in a research center, which joins historian of Western Europe, well, which is mostly centered on historians of Western Europe. And what I've been trying was to make sense of my (coughs) own research on, on India, or mainly on Delhi, to that audience. So it is a. It is a search for an appropriate language. How can, how can we formulate what we have been researching all along as South Asianists in a way that makes sense to an audience of Western European historians? How can we find, how can we, how can we explain our research? How can we find a language which at the same time makes sense to them? Which catches their interest, but does not betray the research that we have been conducting so far. The traditional answer to this question, as it would have been given in the area studies some, well, 15 or 20 years ago, or perhaps even even longer ago, at the time when I started my my studies on Indian <coughs> history, would be to make no difference at all according to the audience you're speaking to. So the very traditional area studies answer would be, it's very nice that they have an interest on Indian history. In fact, that's what they should have. But we're not going to, to meet them halfway. If they're interested in South Asia, they should, la- they should start to learn the languages, and they should start to master the facts. And then they will be able to understand our writings. And the result was these very learned volumes, you all know, which are written half in italics, which are a great pleasure to read for anyone who knows the language and who is already very familiar with the field, but which even pose problems of translating between North Indian and Bengal history, not to speak of South Indian history. So even within India, I think we have, at times, difficulties in understanding each other's words, works. And it simply does not work out for a Western European audience, not, be, not so much because they lack the interest, but simply because they lack the linguistical abilities and because they lack the time to really dwell into a new field. So the traditional answer would have been, if you're interested in South Asia, there's no way but becoming a real full-fledged South Asianist. So then the question would be, where do we go from there? Do we really have to speak to them? Is it worth our while? Is it perhaps even a betrayal of our scholarship if we adapt to their interests? Or is there a way we can meet? I think by the, t- by the way history has evolved, certainly in Germany, but I think it's becoming a worldwide phenomena in the last 10 or 15 years by the impact that global history has had on the way that we are viewing history. We don't have much of a choice any longer. So global history will be coming either with our contribution or without our contribution. So even if we remain very much within an area studies approach. If we don't engage in global history debates, global history will still come. But I'm a little bit scared of the kind of global history that will be, at least for a German context. We have a development towards global history, which is Eurocentrism writ large. So the, ho- the language is a European language blown up. The concepts come from European history and are simply applied to the rest of the world. And there is no input from the area studies. So if we want to have an input, we have to think about a way of presenting our research to people working in other fields as well. At the same time, I think we are also we have also started to rethink Indian history in a way which really changes concepts, which no longer limits Indian history to the boundaries of South Asia. So the the very traditional gl- area studies approach with which I grew up as a student was still very Indocentric. So if you studied India, you studied India within the limits of India and what happened in the rest of the world was not so much of an importance. I remember that that once we had a talk at the South Asia, Hist- South Asia Institute in Heidelberg of someone attempting a comparison between, I think it was Nigeria and, and South Asia, and all of us said, well, that is very strange. Why should we ever care about Nigeria? After all, that's Africa, and we're working on India. So if there was any attempt at Comparison—it would be a comparison, perhaps with Great Britain, but not with anything else. So it was—it was, in a way, an indocentrism with, which matched the Eurocentrism of the European historians. I think that has changed, and global history has affected Indian history as well. So we are starting to to work out entanglements. We are starting to to look at what linked India to the rest of the world not only in a colonial sense but in a in a transnational and translocal sense as well that of course means that if we are no longer limited to a very narrow field we need concepts and we need a language which transcends the language of our sources and that would be the the point i would like to develop a little bit further this afternoon. So what we would need would be a common frame of reference and a common language, which would permit us to, to discover and analyze entanglements, which would also permit us to draw comparisons and make sense of our research in a larger framework. So the question is what language and which concepts can we use for this research? And I think we've all heard very much in the, in the last 10 or 15 years about the, the entanglement between language and power in a historical framework. Probably we've even heard too much about it, so some people tend to get a little bit bored with that already we have had not so many reflection on how that reflects on our own research endeavors. So if language and power are linked in a colonial context, how does the language that we use for our research, how does the fact that we write in English or in German or in French affect the, w- the way we look at history? Is there the same kind of power game involved, how do concepts affect the way we see the world, how do concepts change, how can we change concepts, perhaps to get a a different view at, at looking at our material. And if I'm working on the Ashraf in a North Indian or in a Delhi context in the 19th century, How can I speak about these Ashraf to an audience who does not know what Ashraf means? How can I translate the term? It is not middle class because it was not a class. It works out a little bit better in a German context talking about burger because there you have the, you have a very strong cultural element in it as well. So you have the the political implication of burger as citizen you have the economic implication in burger as bourgeois but you have also a strong cultural element that what held the burger tomb together was a certain way of living was a cultural capital was an emotional code was a way of of behavior but then of course translating the ashraf as burger involves an implicit comparison, which, as every implicit comparison, can be highly dangerous if it's not brought out to the open. And I think for Indian history, we had a very, very long involvement in, comparative, in colonial comparative history. And there are good reasons why many of us shrink back from, from going into, into a comparative venture which would end up in a deficit history, which would allow European history to, to develop a certain standard against which the rest of the world's history has to be measured. And this comparison, of course, is always implied in language. So once I talk about Ashraf as Bürger, it puts two phenomenon together in a common framework and it compares them and as with every comparison we have to be aware of possible implications and possible <coughs> falsifications through the use of language so what absolutely has to be avoided would be a use of burger or of any other concept as a translation for for a for a concept coming directly from the sources which would give the power of definition only to the European audience so the German historians would be the ones who define what a burger is and the Ashraf might either come in or stay out whether they match the category or whether (coughs) they fail to match it so that that approach where a very particularistic experience a very particular historical experience based only on European history defines a concept and this concept is then used as a universal category, that certainly does not work out. So is there any way out of this dilemma? Is there any way we can, through the impact of South Asian history, contribute to a change of the concepts, so if we do need universal concepts, because we want to have a framework in which to compare, if we want to have a framework framework in which to look at global history, we do need concepts which transcend which transcend a narrow linguistical uh, framework. So if we're aiming at some sort of universal or global or trans translinguistical concepts, they can only be based on translocal or universal experience. So the only way to create this new concepts would be to feed in the South Asian experience into a new framing of the concept of Burger. And that is w- why i use this this image of the burger with a turban so the traditional image would be a burger can also can only be someone who wears a morning co- coat and a top hat my aim would be to contribute a narrative using this term of burger at the end of which a burger could also be imagined as wearing a turban so it is an aim of subverting and changing the concept from within by using it for a new narrative. The German answer, once you want to change a concept, or the traditional German answer would always be you can define the concept in a new way. I'm not so sure that works out. You can do a lot of definition work without actually changing a concept at all. What we have to reflect on a lot more, I think, is the way concepts are created. It is the way concepts are created, the way concepts change, and from there to proceed to the question, can we influence this change of concepts in any way? If... So, if we want to contribute to the change of concepts, it means that... It is... Well, it's taking conceptual history from, from a different from a different angle. We had a lot of work on conceptual history, we had a lot of work on how the concept of Burger evolved in the last 200 years, but the idea was always that these conceptual changes in a way don't affect our own research. So our research remains outside conceptual change and is not affected by conceptual change. Of course, that is a fallacy because we are not, as historians, we are not standing outside of, of history, but we are affected by the change and we are contributing, whether we, we know it and we want it or not, we're contributing to a change of concept as well. So I think we should give much more attention to the fact that we are contributing to these changes of, of concepts and how we can rationalize this process <coughs> yeah. So what I would like to do in the in the second half of the lecture would be to give you a short outline of how this reflection might translate into practical history writing. So how do I proceed to write about the Ashraf for a, for a group of historians who know a lot about Burgertum, but who who've never had any contact with Indian history? So that would be the audience, and how at the same time I'm trying to link up with work that South Asianists have been doing so if the image would be a bridge building the aim would be to have the pillars at both sides of the bridge really strong so it is not only that I need a bridge into European history but I have to make sure that the that the pillar which which bases me in South Asian history remains firm as well. So I would start on, or I have started on, with taking up a German interest in the in the research work of Bürgertum. Bielefeld, as some of you might perhaps be knowing, is the center in Germany for the research of Bürgertum, has, lot, has had a uh, research project into the, into the social history and cultural history of first German and then Western European Bürgertum for the last at least 20 years with uh, dozens of PhDs and postdoc works coming out from this research project. So the audience I've been presenting my work to and the colleagues I've been discussing with are people who know everything about German and Western European Bürgertum and who hence tend to think that they know everything about Burgertum writ large. So if they know about Western Europe, they should know about the rest of the world as well. This, of course, has many disadvantages, but it also has the advantage that as soon as you start coaching a project on the Ashraf in the terms of Burger, for the first time they develop an interest in Indian history. And it was really quite amazing to to see once I came to Bielefeld how they they linked up with my research interest and how they started to, to ask questions in a comparative perspective. And for the first time they had the impression that what was done in Indian history might directly link up with what they were doing on a daily basis. So my starting point would be the professions which made up a German Burgertum in the 19th century, which would of course be the learned professions and the service class on the one hand and the trader classes on the other hand. These same professions we encounter in Delhi in the 19th century as well. So we had the we also had lawyers, we had doctors, we had clerks, we had administrators, we had traders, but then The question would be how does a community building work among them? So in Germany for the nineteenth century you would have a feeling of belonging together of all of involving all of these professions. And that then would be the burger tomb. If I start by using the term of burger for the ashraf in Delhi in the nineteenth century, of course very quickly I come to a point where the translation fails because the term of Ashraf includes people who were not seen as burger in a European context and it excludes people who would be burger in a a German context. So that then would be the, the entry point for a conceptual history in the from an Indian perspective. So I start out with a translation, translating Ashraf as Burger, but I then accompany the reader or the the audience by by making them discover that this translation only works up to a certain point and I can point out the moment in which the translation fails by showing that the groups don't match exactly, and the, commu- the community they create has different boundaries. That then would open up to the question: which are the communities perceived by the actors in an Indian context, and how would they? What concepts would they use to define these communities? And that would be the moment I can go into something like a conceptual history of the ashraf, which would make sense to an audience which hasn't thought about ashraf before <coughs> so if we look at this conceptual history of the of the ashraf in delhi or in north india in the in the 19th century the old ashraf at the beginning of the 19th century would include those who were excluded by the term of Bürger. So it would certainly include the nobility. It would include the court. It would include the learned classes. And at the same time, it would exclude those who were included by the term of Bürger, because it would certainly, at the beginning of the 19th century, exclude any trading communities. So at that point, I'm able to show that the translation does not work, and I'm able to show how the translation does not work. The Ashraf at the beginning of the 19th century are a common category encompassing the nobility and the learned, which are held together by a notion of respectability. So I, don't, I think I don't need to go into details for this audience how the Ashraf and the achlaf are opposed to each other, immigration being immigration versus conversion being the main dividing line. I would, however, like to shortly dwell on on one text which might be familiar to to some of you, but certainly not to very many, because we all tend to get very enthusiastic about Ralib still today. And we tend to love his friends and hate his enemies. So Katil, who was the great enemy of Ghalib in Delhi in the beginning of the 19th century and whom Ghalib thought a rotten Persian uh, connoisseur, has a very, very difficult stand today to get any admission into into academia. However, he has produced one of the most fascinating texts on North Indian societies I've come across, the Haft Tamasha, which was originally written in Persian and then translated to Urdu, which is a fascinating text because Khatil himself, as you all know, was a convert from Hinduism. He came from one of the trading communities and then converted to, to Islam and uh, got himself a job as a court poet in Lucknow in the service of the Nawab. And in the, it was in this, in this respect that the Nawab asked him in 1811 to write an introduction into Indian society for a visitor coming from Karbala. So you have a very interesting constellation that you have someone who has been a Hindu, who has a Hindu background, who converted to Islam, looks at his (coughs) own society from the outside, but not from the outside with a colonial perspective, so he's not writing for one of the early colonial officers, but he's writing for someone from within the Muslim world and still who is foreigner enough to warrant this, this look from outside on the Indian history. The way he des- describes Indian society is quite fascinating because for him, neither the castes nor the religions are fixed categories of social representation. And he has quite a number of chapters on the firka of the ashraf, on the undergroups of the, on, or on the, on the tribes. Of the ca- he uses the wor- word firka for the castes as well, so on the castes of the, of the ashraf where he depicts that, well, Ashraf are those who immigrated. That's fine. How do you recognize an Ashraf? You can recognize a Murul because he will have the title of Mirza. Mirza comes from the Central Asian Amirzada, so it would be someone who is from a family of the nobility of the, of the leaders of society. But at the same time, in India, Mirza is used not only for the Amirzadas, so for the, for the upper class, but is used for anyone who comes from Central Asia. So beware, Mirza can, be very, can encompass very different kind of person. That is rendered even more difficult because the, distinct the distinction between Mirza and Mir is not always very clear. So Mir also comes from Amirzada, but Mir is the title used for the the Sayyids, for the descendants of the prophets. But at the same time, Mir is also used for all the Kashmiris who come to North India. So if you have a Mir, he will always claim to be a Sayyid, but don't be too sure about it. He might just be a very ordinary Kashmiri. Or he might, even worse, mir is also used for some of the lower classes. So the perfumers, or even the doom, the musicians, use the title of mir. So it is possible that a mir who claims to be a Sayyid is not a Sayyid at all, but he might be a musician who came to Delhi at at one or two generations before. So he has a very, an almost postmodern way of playing around with these categories, desubstantializing the categories using them for a distinction of communities within the Ashraf and at the same time playing around with the boundaries between these communities and showing that the boundaries are very flexible and very much fluctuating. So the genealogies he is depicting are not biological statements as the British then read them in the second half of the 19th century but their claims to social honor. It is a way they are symbols used for the discussion of the attribution of social honor. So you still have at that time a notion of the ashraf which is based on on immigration, but which is very much aware of the fact that immigration is or the the genealogy based on immigration is neither a historical fact nor a biological fact, but is a way of constructing communities and constructing and attributing social honor. If we then look at what has been called the new Ashraf, in which category which developed more or less since the 1850s, we find a real sea change, we find a discreditation of the nobility, we find the new Ashraf being very much aware of the fact that they're not Nawabs, that they distinguish themselves from a Nawabi culture, and as the As the time goes on, and it gains great impetus after 1857, these new Ashraf link up with Victorian values. So you have people like Zakaullah or like Nazir Ahmed developing a code of values which relies very much on, on family values, on thriftiness, on time management on punctuality on well you know, you know the whole the whole universe of the victorian values and for that reason these new ashraf have very often been compared to british middle class and seen only as the result of a colonial influence of course the colonial influence had had a great impact there's no way of of denying that but i think it might be useful to trace this genealogy of the of the new ashraf a little further back and i'm sure someone like like muzaffar has a lot to, th- to say about that in how far that links back to values and concepts which were developed in reformist islam since the second half of the 18th century so i would like to, well, I think we, we need to do both at the same time. We have to be aware that it is a development which, is, which gains momentum in the 19th century, which certainly has the impact of colonialism, but which at the same time links back to the 18th century and to the reformist movement. Insofar as you have the same critique of the nobility and of the leading forces of society already in reformist Islam, you have the critique that the nobles no longer took their role as leaders of the society seriously. They did not live up to their duties to protect the Muslim community. Therefore, they had failed and should be discarded by new forces so this whole and I, i'm i'm unfortunately not not familiar enough with the 17th and 18th century to see how far that development really goes back that you have a critique of the nobility as too worldly and failing to live up to the duties they should live up to which you certainly have in reformist islam but i think which goes back further to certain Sufi traditions and I would very much like your your response on that. So this critique of the nobility which then led to to the search for new forces to preserve the Islamic character or the Muslim character of society and it led to to a situation in which lower, well, not low classes, but a strata below the nobility took responsibility for society and took responsibility especially for the preservation of the Muslim character of society. So if the Muslim character of society can no longer can no longer be preserved by state action or by action of the ruler, then it becomes the responsibility of every single Muslim, of his way of behavior, of his personal piety and the piety of the women he is responsible for, to behave in a way that the community will still be perceived as Muslim or as Islamic. And these new leaders of society, these new persons taking responsibility for the communities, at least for Delhi and I think, but I think it goes further than just Delhi, to a large extent where the trading communities. So you find a shift in the patronage of the religious movements which is taking place in the late 18th and in the first half of the 19th century from the nobility patronizing religious scholars to traders taking up this position, and the traders also linking up with the reformist Islam movement because this new form of piety became a cultural capital for new groups. So it was no longer a given category of immigration, of genealogy, which decided whether you belonged to the leaders of a society, but it was piety, it was personal behavior, it were the values you lived up to. So it were categories you could live up to, you could acquire. And that of course was of immense interest to a trading community who would be excluded from leading positions or from positions of respectability as long as respectability was only built up on genealogy. So what you get is a new respectability for pious traders where this social honor is no longer only acquired through descent, but through the manners and the values you live up to. Piety gains a new role in permitting the acquisition of social respectability. And this new social respectability through piety now has the potential of bridging this gap between the traders on the one hand and the learned on the other hand. So you have the double movement. You have on the one hand this critique of the nobility, which draws a line between the Nawabs and the, Ashraf, the new Ashraf and, and cuts across the, the old Ashraf. So if the old Ashraf included the, the nobility as well as the learned, but excluded the, the trading community, you have the new Ashraf who distinguish themselves from the nobility and from the values of the nobility, but who have a common notion of respectability and of social honor which starts to link to bridge the gap between them and the traders and at that moment it is that i feel that the notion that the comparison with the burgertum really makes sense because you get the same or a very similar social imagination of being the the group in the middle who has to fight for its position against the nobility on the one hand and against the commoners on the other hand, and who has this very ambivalent position of inclusion and exclusion, which is so characteristic for the, for the European middle class. So they see themselves as the universal category. Everyone can become an Ashraf by this new notion of respectability, because everyone has the possibility of becoming a pious Muslim. It's a very inclusive category. And at the same time, you have the exclusion process, because in reality, of course, it is a strongly delimited social category. And the lower classes will not have the possibility to enter it as easily as it looks from the outside. So to sum that up, what I would try to do that way would be I started out with a category of Bürger. I showed how the category of Bürger did not really match with the category of Ashraf, then introduced the conceptual history of Ashraf, showed how the notion of Ashraf changed in the course of the 19th century, and at the same time played around with the translation between Ashraf and Berger. What I've been aiming at by this, by this narrative, which is based on Bürger, was a subversion of the concept from within so i use the category of burger to narrate the story of the ashraf and thereby hope to change the category of burger of course you could say that this is an unnecessary detour i could speak about the ashraf straight away if anyhow i'm going to to introduce the conceptual history of the ashraf if my german audience has to learn that term and bielefeld has learned it luckily, I could start out with Ashraf right from the beginning. The problem I I would have with that approach would be on the one hand, it would not have this initial linking up with the research interest of my German or European colleagues. So if I start talking about the Ashraf right from the beginning, it would not necessarily make sense to their own research. So I have to find an entry point to show in how far research on Ashraf has an importance for someone working on German bürgertum. Still, I could avoid the term of bürgertum because that implies this comparative perspective. I would consider leaving aside the category of Bürgertum, if Bürgertum was really a concept which is only applied to Germany. But as I showed at the beginning, it is a highly ambivalent concept. It is a concept which comes from German history but which at the same time is used as a universal category. So if I want to get at the universal category which, for instance, is very implicit if you have statements like, there was no bürgertum in Russian history or in the Islamic world. Of course, statements like this only make sense if bürgertum is used as a universal category. If it's used only as a German term, of course, there was no German bürgertum in Russia or the Islamic world. So that's so obvious that the statement doesn't make sense at all. So it is used as a universal category. If I want to deconstruct the universalism of the, of the term, I can only use it by subverting it from within, and I have to change the concept. Changing the concept is only possible once I use it and I engage with the concept. So as a conclusion, perhaps to end on a slightly more skeptical note, what I have been aiming at was what Kozelic calls a meta-language. So it would be a language which transcends the language of the sources, the language of our day-to-day academic use, and try to create a language which transcend, transcends linguistic boundaries. That, of course, is a much too ambitious project, and it cannot be realized in one go, and perhaps it cannot be realized at all. So the question is whether we stop there and just limit ourselves to the concepts we find in our sources and which have been used by the actors, which of course historically is much more accurate. But then it would mean, that in the end, if I want to use German as an academic language, I can only write about Germany. If I want to write about North India, in the end, and I want to avoid any kind of translation, in the end, I would have to, to write in Urdu or in Persian. And any kind of communication across linguistical boundaries would no longer be possible. And I think that would render history unnecessarily provincial not in the sense that Dipesh is us- using provincial, but in the, in the pejorative sense. So if we, if we can speak about India only in Indian languages, if we cannot transport the knowledge across boundaries, then, of course, any hope for a global perspective, for the pointing out of entanglement, ends there. And we have to become very narrow, and of course, I have to, sp- to stop speaking English. Uh, so that cannot be the the aim. The meta language is is one possibility. I'm not sure whether it's really a convincing possibility. But before I dismiss it as a possibility, I would I would need another solution which is more convincing. So I would like to take that as the entry point for for the discussion. Uh, is this search for meta-language convincing at all? If it is not convincing, what are the alternatives? Because going back to, to this negative kind of provincialism, I think, is a solution that none of us would really want in the end. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much.